If you're gay, then you're gay. You don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. tuning in and welcome to IMRU Radio Magazine. Out front and out loud since 1974. Striving each week to amplify the voices of the LGBTQIA2S plus communities. I'm Frances O'Brien in Los Angeles. A reminder, Hispanic Heritage Month is September 15th through October 15th. On this outing of our show, we celebrate Hispanic Heritage Month with two special films on the stream, celebrate National Coming Out Day, and revisit the Material Girls' Days of Blonde Ambition. When Quinceañera debuted at the Sundance Film Festival in 2006, it won the Grand Jury Prize. Steve Pride was in the audience that night, and the next morning sat down with its directors and stars. The film, Quinceanera, is a look at what happens when teenage sexuality, age-old rituals, and real estate prices collide. As Magdalena's 15th birthday approaches, and she prepares for her Quinceanera, her life takes an unexpected turn, with the discovery that although she's technically a virgin, she's pregnant. Kicked out of her house, she finds a new family with her great-granduncle Tomas, and her cousin Carlos, a tough gay cholo who was thrown out by his parents. The back house rental where Tomas has lived happily for many, many years is on a property that was recently purchased by an affluent white gay couple, pioneers of a gentrification changing the traditionally poor and Latino makeup of their Echo Park neighborhood in Los Angeles. Hello, I'm Wash Westmoreland. And I am Richard Gladster. We are the writer-directors of Quinceanera. We moved to Echo Park in 2001 and felt much more at home there than we had in the Melrose area where we were living previously and uh, got to know our neighbors very quickly and were asked to be the official photographers at our next-door neighbor's quinceanera, which was our first real experience of that event. Uh, and just over time, we'd seen the neighborhood changing. We'd seen it gentrifying. And one day, it was January 1st, 2005, it just occurred to us, sitting around hungover, talking about ideas for movies we had, what an interesting kind of soup our block is. And just, you know, multi-ethnic, multicultural, different races, different sexuality, different generations, that it was such kind of ripe material, um, people right next door to each other and yet not knowing about each other's worlds. But by just moving into the neighborhood, Wash and Richard inadvertently changed the neighborhood. They fixed up their house, raising property values. Friends dropped by and decided they too would love to move to Echo Park. 
Starbucks began to eye locations already occupied by family-run bodegas. Well, that's exactly what our movie is about. Everyone's jumping up and down going, oh, the hot real estate market, prices are going up. You know, everyone's making money. It's not everyone's making money. There's also people who rent houses, people who've been in communities for decades paying rent on a place. If they had been paying a mortgage, they'd probably own the house by now. But because they've been renting, they haven't accumulated any capital and they haven't got any rights as to like hanging on to that place that they very much may have made their own. So what the movie's looking at is like, well, in this hot real estate market, you are getting, what's it like from the point of view from the traditional community, from the renters who are getting, you know, displaced. And what we're saying is something's lost, you know, something's lost from the spirit of a neighbourhood and it makes life very hard for people when they have to hold up after our, for one of our characters, 28 years and move to a new place just because the rent's going up. And part of what motivated us to want to make the film was that our next-door neighbors who had rented their back house for 28 years were displaced. And then, uh, actually, after we started making the film, the house we shot in for Magdalena's house, our main character's house in the film, uh, those people were booted out very unceremoniously after renting that for, I think it was seven years. And that house has been torn down since we shot the film, and it's now going to be for condominiums. So. While Quinceanera is filled with neophyte actors and neighbors making their screen debut, the part of Grand Uncle Tomas is played by Chelo Gonzalez whose nearly 40-year screen career began in Sam Peckinpah classics like The Wild Bunch and Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia. Chelo's also a longtime L.A. resident with a strong opinion on the gentrification of Echo Park and other traditionally Latino neighborhoods. You know, originally, when the uh, Chavez Ravine was, uh, you know, they threw all the people from Chavez Ravine out to build the uh, Dodgers Stadium, most of them come down the hill to Echo Park, you know. But now the rents are so tremendously high that the Latin people, uh, you know, they know, they don't, uh, most of them don't have good education. And their jobs that they have, their paying jobs that, you know, very poor paying jobs, and McDonald's and, uh, you know, washing cars and things like that. So they can't afford it anymore. They, they are, and the people who have good education are moving in because it's a good area. So there, that's why we're losing, these people are losing, they're moving out. They're moving out to Lancaster, or to Chino, or to someplace like that. And it's a shame, you know. But uh, what, I, what I think that this, this uh, movie does is telling the Latins to educate themselves, to really have a good education so, so they don't have to move. They don't have to be as, uh, taken out of any place. That's one of the things that I like about this movie. But as I said earlier, Quinceanera is about more than real estate and a 15-year-old pregnant virgin. For the gay audience, it's about a guy named Carlos. Sylvia? Mm-hmm. I haven't seen Carlos yet. Well, he's not coming. He's not coming to his own sister's Quinceanera? Aunt Sylvia, Uncle Walter wants you. Don't talk to me about that boy. Carlos, played by newcomer Jesse Garcia, is a gay character we've not seen in film before. A proud Latino, muscular and tattooed, outwardly a tough cholo, Carlos is also very comfortable with his sexuality. When he has a three-way with his white gay landlords, it blurs the lines of who's seducing who. There's interesting gay issues in the movie that I don't think you've seen in films very much before. There's a couple of white gay guys in the movie. You know, the film is kind of critical of them. And I think it'd be kind of interesting for a gay audience to think about those issues, both in terms of the real estate and both in terms of, like, their attitude towards Carlos in a three-way. And uh, I'd really like to provoke a discussion about those issues. But then, overwhelmingly, I think there's the story of Carlos, I think, resonates for a lot of gay people that, you know, he is ostracised from his family because of his sexuality, but he does find acceptance in a kind of queer family with a great-granduncle who had never married but 
was this just kind of like mentor, this like parent that wasn't judgmental. And the effect that can have on, you know, on a gay person or any person like Magdalena who's experiencing a, a, a difference or, 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 or like an ostracism, that, you know, to, to create that family and then to, for the main extended family to accept that family, I think that's just an extremely positive thing. But issues of class, race and power arise when Carlos has a separate affair with one of the two landlords. Like this? No, it's like this. This one's an E. This one's a P. Echo Parque. Echo Parque. <laughs> Be careful you don't flash everyone on Temple Street, though. They're the rival gang, right? They'd kill you. Wow. You really live in a whole other world, don't you? Nah. You do. I think it's a movie about acceptance, accepting things for the way they are, people for the way they are. Actor Jesse Garcia. He knew he was gay, but he allowed himself to be in that situation. If you don't want to be in that situation, you're not going to be in that situation. His dad found out that he was gay by internet sites that he was visiting. In media and in movies, that's not how you find out you get caught with a dude or whatever. And his dad tracked the site that he went to. I mean, he knew he was gay, and he was, if you watched in, in the earlier scenes where they first meet, you know, you can kind of tell that Carlos is interested in just by looks, you know, when, you know when someone's interested and when someone's not. Most people do. I'm, I'm pretty oblivious, but. <laughs> How we think of Carlos isn't so much an archetype, but a new type. We think of him as a kid who has really got to know about sex and about sexual identity through the internet which is something kids have only been really able to do, or people have only been able really to do since that technology's been around. But a lot of people do Google to find out the facts of life and the facts about themselves. So he's really formed a sexual identity that's quite solid about himself as a young gay man without ever coming into contact with physical gay people. So what you're seeing when in the movie when he is like, you know, a young Latino guy comes into contact with a very white yuppie gay scene is like a kind of culture class within the gay community. He already knows he's gay. And in a way, in his relationships with James and Gary, he's a willing participant. He's playing the seduction game too. Ultimately what happens with that story, though, brings up a lot of issues about a kind of codified racism in the white gay community to see Carlos just as a plaything, as a kind of exotic sort of participant in the freeway, rather than giving him equal rights as a person, rather than like inviting him to the dinner party, they would just use him for sex. So it's really kind of looking at this attitude of like, well, what's behind that? And it's also asking sort of, you know, white gay community to question, what's it like from Carlos's point of view? What's it like for him? Straight actors playing gay roles is nothing new. Jesse Garcia, who heats up the screen as Carlos, is heterosexual. I only know that because a publicist told me. While most actors in his position mention their girlfriends less than a minute into the interview, my perception of his sexuality is not something Jesse cared about. As a matter of fact, I invented this one character when I was doing these sketch comedy shows in Atlanta called Merengue. And um, I went on set one day, like after I'd just gotten done shooting my scenes, and it was kind of a tense day on set where everything was working, but it was just one of those days. And I went to wardrobe. I grabbed a super mini skirt, threw it on, grabbed some high heels, grabbed a tiny little black tank top, some wristbands and some a belt and earrings and fedora hat, and, and walked a block and a half to where they were shooting and walked in on set as Merengue, and they died. Everyone loved it. They've got pictures and footage of it everywhere. It's probably going to be on a DVD. One of the biggest surprises to many people is the background of the filmmakers behind Quinceanera. Richard Glatzer, who rode the queer new wave of the early 1990s with grief, has been more recently involved in reality shows like America's Next Top Model. His partner, Wash Westmoreland, got his start directing gay porn titles that I can't say on the radio. Fans of Kensonera at the video store looking for the last film they did together would be handed a copy of The Fluffer, 
about a gay kid with an unusual but necessary job in the gay porn industry. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because um, it does feel like the movie has more mainstream appeal than Sonia, definitely, and the reception has been amazing. We're so grateful. Uh, the Fluffer did divide people. Um, but I feel both films have controversial elements in them. I mean, here we're dealing with teenage sexuality and with uh, homophobia in the Latino community and a kind of coded racism in the gay community. So, you know, it's not like we've made a sugar-coated film or anything like that, but I'm so happy it's been received the way it is. It's a film about very different communities coming in contact with each other, and it's a film that's promoting tolerance. That's the way we see it. This has been a conversation with Richard Glatzer, Wash Westmoreland, Chelo Gonzalez, and Jesse Garcia. Quinceanera won both the Audience Award and the Dramatic Grand Jury Prize at this year's Sundance Film Festival. It's being released in the U.S. and the U.K. by Sony Pictures Classics. For more information, visit quinceanerathemovie.com or prideonscreen.com. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Yo no sé. A reminder, Hispanic Heritage Month is Wednesday, September 15th through October 15th. The film Quinceañera can be rented to stream on Amazon Prime, YouTube, Google Play Movies and TV, Apple TV, and Vudu. October 11th is National Coming Out Day, and our favorite coming out story came about a few years ago from a 13-year-old viola prodigy whose 15-year-old big sister did the interview while their supportive mother hung out in the lobby. You have got to be taught to hate and fear day after day, year after year. I'm Benjamin, and this is my sister, Jessica Pensner. She's 16 years old. Hi, I'm Jessica. This is my brother, Ben, and he is 13 years old. Okay, Ben, so um, when did you come out? I was 10, fifth grade. It was during a school day, and my teacher, Jude, he was gay, too. He is gay, too. And I, I thought that I liked a couple guys in my class. I was really, really confused because of all the things that was going on. I was 10. <laughs> I don't think I knew very much about that kind of stuff. So then the first time I told anybody was my mom. I went back to my mom's house after school, and then I sort of put my face to the back of my mom on my mom's back. Then I said, Mom, I think I'm gay. And she was like, what did you say? And then I said, Mom, I think I'm gay. And then she was like, oh, okay. And that's all she said. And you told me after that, right? Mm-hmm. How was that experience for you? Because I couldn't see inside your head at the time. <laughs> it was really different for me. I've never experienced something like that before. So we were in Mom's room, and I told you, and I said, Jessica, I think I'm gay. And then you said, I think I'm bi. And then... When we hugged, we were crying, and then I felt really, really open. I felt, like, really close to you. And that was, like, the first time that we felt so close, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh, because you were only 10, and that was a bad time for me, too. We were both just going through some really weird times. <laughs> I'm really glad you told me then. Me, too. So how did you feel about it? Oh, my gosh, uh... Well, when you told me, I wasn't just crying. I was sobbing. 
I didn't know how to feel, like, to tell you the truth. I have never been against gays or against anything that they stood for because, you know, I was, still am, bisexual. But you, my brother, being gay was such a trip for me. I wasn't sad that you were gay. I wasn't disappointed or anything. It was just so overwhelming. And then afterwards, I had some time to feel, to think about it and to figure out my feelings, and I was so happy. <laughs> I was one of those girls who would always want the gay best friend <laughs> who we could, you know, hang out with and go talk about girly things, and oh my gosh, that person is my brother. That, it, it's amazing to have you, Ben. <laughs> it really is. And the fact that you're there for me and are always so nice. You're just such a nice person. And I can't believe <laughs> that I have you. I and that you knew by 10? I mean, really? <laughs> yeah, it was really weird for me, too. What did you talk to Jude about, anyway? Oh, fifth grade teacher. After I told our parents, our dad thought of... Um, go talking to Jude because he knew that he was gay because we found out about a paper that they handed out at school. That said that Jude was gay? No, <laughs> that that said that Jude was living with his husband. Oh. Yeah. Which basically says that Jude is gay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so then Dad said, maybe we should go talk to him and see what his perception of this was. So after school, Dad and Mom went to the school after all the classes were done. We sat down at, at one of the tables and then I told Jude and then he was like, okay. And then we talked about how he was gay and how he came out, that he couldn't come out until college. And he thought of me as really brave of going, of coming out at 10 years old. And then we talked about his high school years, how he forced himself to keep his girlfriend because his friends were not gay supporters and how he thought of it. Then he said that um, it felt like torture. So he came out in college and he regretted it, that he didn't come out sooner and that he was really happy for me. And you've got to be taught before it's too late, before you reach six or seven or eight, to hate all the people. We'll be right back with our special coming out day story after this quick break. Don't go away. Prolific composer Hans Werner Hinze, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Born July 1, 1926 in Gürtelsloh in Western Germany, Hans Werner Hinze's prodigious output included 40 operas and pieces for stage, symphony, string quartet, keyboard, and chamber works. They earned him a spot as one of Germany's foremost composers. Hinze grew up as the Nazis were taking over Germany. After being called up in the army in 1944, he was captured by the British and remained in a prisoner of war camp until the war's end. Finding intolerance towards his own political views and his homosexuality, he self-exiled to Italy in 1953, where he made his home and found his own harmonious balance of art and life. Hinze met his longtime companion Fausto Moroni in 1964, and they remained together until Moroni's death in 2007. Hinze died five years later in 2012. 
The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Michael Mazaris. My name is Joe Smoke. I was born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I am, and I love listening to IMRU Radio. Welcome back. I'm Frances O'Brien, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. Now back to Ben and Jessica. It's got to be drummed in your dear little ear. You've got to be carefully taught. Are you happy that you came out so soon? Yeah. I don't have to lie as much as I thought I did. Did you know at 10, or did you know earlier than that? I had a pretty okay perception of it at 10. I was still iffy about it. There was this one person that I did tell in middle school. I forgot who he was, but he said that you can't know until you're 17. (laughs) So I was like, oh, okay. But later on, I got a better understanding of it, and then I said, wow, that was such a lie. But anyway, at 10, I was not sure at all. I was confused, as most people are at that age, if they think of it. Well, now we go to Renaissance Arts Academy, right? Yeah. And we came there right after that whole fifth grade fiasco. Oh, yeah. And our school is very open with that kind of thing. And anyone who is of any sexual orientation does not feel out of place. Did you feel like you had a better understanding of who you were in that school? Yeah. I had a lot of people to talk to. I felt so much better at Renarts than at VCCS, my middle school, because it was really small, so everybody knew each other, and it was really interesting to talk to people about it because they were really open to the subject. And there are some gay people at our school, just not as many. Is it easier to talk about it with your friends at Renarts? Yes. Yeah, it really is. I actually talk about it as a regular subject now because I've talked to them about it so much. There's this place called the Renaissance Fair, and there's this girl named Taylor, and she's a friend of mine, and she's a lesbian. And me and her talk about it in detail. It's really nice to talk to her about that. Are you glad that you have someone like that that you can release what you've been holding in for so long to? <sighs> yes, it really is. It's. I'm so happy that I don't have to bottle it up so much. It makes me feel incredible. It's awesome. It's. If you if you do, it's. I've done it before. I've stopped myself from telling people that I was gay, and. I have to lie, and I'm not the best liar. I'm, I suck at lying. Yeah, you do. <laughs> <laughs> then they ask me again, and I have to lie again. Well, you don't have to lie anymore. I know. You don't have to lie to anyone, even if they are against what you are. It doesn't matter. They can't do anything to you. And if you ever need help... I'm here, and all our friends are here. 
So don't worry about it, okay? Okay. So now you're at Renart's, and you're the viola prodigy. <laughs> you are the gay, blonde, blue-eyed viola prodigy. <laughs> how does that feel to be so wonderful? I like it how everybody knows me, and I don't know them. It's fun. Sometimes I feel kind of famous at that school. It's really, really nice. That's good. You're going to play something, right? Yeah. You want to go do that right now? Yeah. Go for it. Pensner has since graduated from the University of Michigan School of Music and lives in Los Angeles. This year, he took top honors at the 2021 American Viola Society Festival. On August 16th, Madonna turns 64, and we've decided to celebrate with a look back at an iconic moment in IMRU history when we gathered nearly all of the Blonde Ambition Tour veterans in Studio C for a chat and vogue. Hello, I'm Carlton Wilborn, and I'm one of the dancers from the Blonde Ambition Tour. I'm Kevin Stay, and I'm also one of the dancers from the Blonde Ambition Tour, also dance captain and associate choreographer. Hi guys, my name is Louis Camacho. I'm also one of the dancers of the Blonde Ambition Tour and co-choreographer of the Vogue video. Hi, my name is Donna DeLore, and I sang and danced on that Blonde Ambition Tour. Hi, I'm Nikki Harris, and I'm one of the singers, dancers, and uh, all around pain in the butt on the Blonde Ambition <laughs> Yes, a spiritual goddess. And spiritual goddess, yes. yes. The question I have for the women specifically is the Blonde Ambition Ambition Tour was so much a gay thing. You were surrounded by these gay male dancers and they were orbiting around a gay male icon. Where was your place in that universe and how did you assert yourself? I felt very comfortable. I didn't feel like I really had to assert myself. Nikki and I had started working with Madonna in 1987. So we'd already been on one round of uh, Camp Madonna and we'd already done our first tour being very young. Yeah. Actually, the gay thing for me, also because we were dancers, too. We had been around yeah, dancers, so that's being, thing. you know, that was not a big deal I for grew us. Up what was a big deal is that we were in a much more quieter way of living as far as our lifestyle. So this was the first time that we were around dancers who were definitely saying, Louis gave me my first fragrance. Kevin <laughs> gave me my first... <laughs> Tell your boyfriend that. Actually, he was the first time that a man came to me and said, I know you like me, but I'm gay. So I was like... Oh! Okay. <laughs> I was, just the all. I was completely in love with Slam. Yeah. I mean, the moment he walked in. Really? Was like, I mean, everybody, but I was just like, uh, he was just the most beautiful. And he is still beautiful. He's just oh, not here yeah. today. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Everyone in this room is beautiful, I have to say. Everybody got better. Yeah. <laughs> that's one huge perception from the film, is how interested I am in all of you. When I watched the film, I was really struck by how confident all of you looked way back when, 25 years, I can't believe it. I'm a singer, and seeing you just 
grabbing it as singers and seeing you guys grabbing it as men, as these dancers. And then when I saw the film, I saw what vulnerable kids you were. And you even described yourselves that way a little bit. And Madonna was sort of this mom figure. Did you have any idea at the time how people were viewing you or what it meant to people to view you? Not at all. There was no social media for us to have sort of an immediate feedback of, right. of people's response. So we just did our show and then we rushed off to the next city. So there really wasn't this sense of a response of understanding how we were landing with people other than the regular fans would just come and scream. <laughs> so we, we didn't really have an understanding of any, anything of Yeah, depth. I mean, at the venues when the shows were happening or when we went in to do our sound check because they would allow some of the audience to come in early, and you know that sort of ramp up in their energy, we could tell. And Lewis says it in the film that they would be screaming out all of our names, mm -hmm. you know, or we'd see a banner with Donna and mm -hmm. Kevin and Nikki and everybody. So we could see it like that, but to be aware of it after the job was over, not so much. And it yeah. seems like the impact is something that's continued. Like yes. it, the bigger impact is really not just the show and the entertainment value of the show, but sort of the impact on how people felt freer to express themselves over time. Mm -hmm. And speaking of the impact that has continued, when I was watching the flashbacks to Truth or Dare, which I haven't seen since it came out, it looked as if you guys were softening the ground for the tidal wave of reality programming that we're now swimming in. Because that was the first time when I look back and you think, oh, that's when we got used to cameras just being up in everybody's face in bed and doing what people do. I mean, of course, you couldn't have known it at the time, but how does it feel to look back and think, wow, I was there at the birth practically? Well, to be clear, there are a lot of concert movies. I think this film was the first in that it kind of delved more into... Sex, I think, is the word we're looking for. <laughs> or that. <laughs> Social but, issues. Well, and into the lives, into our lives. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't just a concert movie. It, mm. it was really a documentary into backstage. And there's also her willingness to be exposed and to share herself behind the scenes, looking bad or being bitchy or whatever it was that she was sharing. Like, that's unheard of. Stars are very careful with their images and they give forth a very, you know, carved little presence. And, and she was just much more open and free like that. Her view is what created this whole sense of reality TV. And as we all wonder now, when we watch reality TV, how much of it was scripted? Or was it truly reality that far back? Well, I mean, you know, all of that is subject because mm -hmm. to some degree once I say can you guys sit over here or come and stand over there <laughs> or come and let's back in again, again. <laughs> do it again no it ain't organically real every reality project that we witness is sculpted to some degree and and yeah I think yeah. what happened was as we were on tour things would happen like we started on our own with a film crew playing Truth or Dare at dinners oh, yeah. in Spain with oh, yeah. drinking sangria, playing Truth That's or right. Dare, and then it got around. You know, I'm sure Alec <laughs> totally. heard about it, and he was like, "Ooh, let's That's do that with Madonna at dinner." Yeah. So things were they were organically happening between us, yeah. and then it would it would spark an idea to have right. that be a yeah. scene, and then we were all at a dinner and we all played together, and then things spontaneously obviously happened. And Donna and Nikki, you had been doing this with Madonna for a while. This was not new to you. This was new in many ways to you guys and the other four dancers. This exposure to that level of fame and the Madonna frenzy that happened in the film Strike a Pose really goes into sort of the unexpected effects of that on you guys. But did you sort of look at them and kind of go, oh, we've been down this road. We know a little bit about what to expect. I know that I didn't. I knew I was older than them, but I was young enough that 
we had seen Madonna turn into a pop star, so we had mm -hmm. got to that part. And we knew by this tour that she was a bona fide superstar. We knew that. Mm -hmm. We also, well, you know, we, we got to go through Sean with her. We got to go through the entrance of Warren Beatty. We had done soundtracks with her. We've done albums. Shows, so all kind of stuff like that. But what we did not get to do is see her really put her life around her dancers mm -hmm. the way she had done with them. And then you throw on top of that, putting a camera around it all too. Mm -hmm. So I think Warren said it best. This is really what you really want to do. Who would think somebody would want to have a camera follow? Right. Well, Apparently everybody. Apparently everyone. <laughs> and maybe, and maybe. I mean, and I guess that is still the $6,000 question. Really? Does everybody want yeah. it? I don't know if everybody wants it because some people still find it really hard to tell the truth, especially on camera. Especially on camera. That's what this movie shows. Because there's some unsaids in this movie that are said very loudly. Yes. Mm -hmm. Of course we were young like you guys, and that was probably my favorite tour ever. And But the one thing I did notice was you guys had endless amounts of energy to go out after the show. Nikki <laughs> <laughs> and, and I, we we'd be meeting meet for like a tea or something, and there you guys are after the show, dressed up in these clothes. I was like, inspiring. And then we'd be like, we gotta go out too, come on. To the crack of dawn. Let's go, and you always knew where you're going. Oh, that, that was, was crazy. So the, these were the first people made me feel like I didn't know nothing. I was so great. Like, like, are you really going to wear that? You know you really could put some fragrance on. You know you really, are you really going to wear your hair like that? And I'm like, I felt bad. Like, I'm older, but you're telling I'm like, I guess I'm not. I'm not wearing these earrings with this. And how do you know where to go in Tel Aviv? Exactly. I don't know where to go in Chicago. You know where to go in Tel Aviv? There is a secret gay network that preceded the internet, and I, it's, it's a boy gay network, and it still exists. I want to hear about it. I never had a membership to it. No, really, how did you know where to go in Tel Aviv? Uh, I'm not even really sure. It was always just where a matter of... Where did you go in Tel Aviv for that well, we, On this one, we didn't go to Tel Aviv, but certainly like Spain and Madrid and like, and like Amsterdam. I think people came to us. Come, oh, yeah. out to the, come out to this club yeah, tonight. We're like, okay, I heard that there's a something something, yeah. and we're all going to go. And then once we all decided on that, then we're our own party. We can go anywhere. Well, there was always <laughs> that one person that stayed behind mm -hmm. that followed us to the hotel, yeah, that yeah. hung out in the lobby, that would us. and they would talk us up and invite us somewhere, and we were like, sure, let's go. Yeah. As well as it's hard to sleep when there's thousands of people down at the bottom of your hotel going, yeah. 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 we, like, well, we might as well go out, y'all, you because know, I get to sleep. Plus, we were so high from the adrenaline, you know. Don't go away. We'll be right back with more Blonde Ambition after this quick break. Angel of the Waters, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Taking center stage in New York City's Central Park, the Angel of the Waters Fountain is a place for quiet contemplation. The three-tiered fountain topped by the sculpture of an angel was unveiled in 1873 and was created by Emma Stebbins. She was the first woman to receive a sculptural commission in New York City. Stebbins designed the neoclassical sculpture to celebrate the fresh water provided by the new Croton Aqueduct for not only the fountain, but for all New Yorkers. The angel holds a lily in one hand representing purity the other hand is outstretched to bless the waters, which were once unsafe to drink. Unfortunately, when her beloved Charlotte Cushman died of pneumonia in 1876, Stebbins' days of creative inspiration were over. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Daniela Wyatt. Hi, I'm Sam from Colorado. I am, and I'm listening to IMRU. Welcome back. I'm Frances O'Brien, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. 
and now back to abby wenzel kevin carlton jose luis oliver nikki and donna just a reminder i'm abby dees and i'm wenzel jones and we're in a studio filled with folks from madonna's 1990 blonde ambition tour talking about that tour their lives madonna the 1991 film truth or dare and the 2017 documentary strike a pose let me ask you a little bit about somebody who is not in the film today and apparently loved by everyone was Gabriel. And Gabriel uh, passed away from HIV. And I'm just wondering if you could share some of your memories of Gabriel and what he brought to this group. Where do we start? Where do we start? He was just just beautiful. And, and, and it was one of those like, not because I had a, that kind of crush on you. <laughs> Gabriel had this like, Oh my God, he's just so precious. Like right. I always thought of Gabriel, like aesthetically and energetically, as like a cherub. Mm-hmm. He was just like this beautiful, beautiful. delicate, but owning space mm-hmm. thing. Yeah, he was just a gentle force. Oliver in the film, who is the one straight fellow of the of the dancers. I, I love his story of him sort of having getting over his stuff was so, so sweet. But he described Gabriel as innocent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That sounds right. It's not that he was innocent, but it was right. just that his energy yeah. about it was always so positive and bright and light and giving and the way he moved was so beautiful. There was a beauty about him mm-hmm. always. He was an enigma to yeah. me and Jose. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah, well, me and Jose came from the low east side of New York, so we (laughs) we didn't have a lot of friends that were like Gabriel. You know, we, so, I don't know, he was just so nice. As well as, as as so, uh, I will say this in front of my two brothers, I love y'all down, but Kevin and Gabriel were two of the first dancers that I was always going, they do that. How did they do that? They tumbled. They danced. They could do ballet. They did everything and looked effortless doing it just like I was like are they about to do? he just flipped four times he just did a flip and we got this much room how's he doing that how is he doing that between you and Gabe I used to just be in awe at watching you guys dance every night I think all of us kind of wanted to be around him a lot I know for myself if I ever wanted to go anywhere or I'd go have dinner or go shopping or go walking around or go explore anything he was the first person I called always because I knew I'd have a good time I knew it'd be relaxing it'd be fun mm-hmm. I knew I could share anything I wanted to with him and it would all be accepted and enjoyed. Mm-hmm. I looked to Gabriel. If I ever wanted just a quiet conversation, mm-hmm. it was Gabriel, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we had all this energy mm-hmm. and it was like yeah. the Kiki was always with us. But if I just wanted just a respite from that, mm-hmm. I would turn to Gabriel. And that's who he was for me. One of the things that the film goes into in great detail, three of the seven dancers were HIV positive. And one of the things the film talks about that is so moving to me is that None of the men that were HIV positive shared this with anybody. Everybody was quiet about it. And in many ways, Strike a Pose is a coming out story about this. I am one of the three. I was diagnosed in 1985. And the beauty about this project right now is it's allowing me, because I'm so on the other side of it, it being all the shame and the just the self chastisement thing that was going on I'm so on the other side of that mm-hmm. and so it's amazing right now so that feels like the coming out like what's coming out is my joy mm-hmm. of life mm-hmm. and my freedom <clears throat> to be authentically me mm-hmm. across the board That's beautiful. yeah really beautiful. and we've seen one of our own past Gabriel passed from this and didn't even share it I asked him point blank mm-hmm. are you HIV positive Do you have AIDS he said no closest person to me I like couldn't even share it with me 
It definitely shows how, how far we've come. Yeah. It shows how much progress we've made. I remember that time being so scared. I remember one time I was dating someone, and we were getting intimate. It was in the evening, and somebody called tell? me. Right? <laughs> somebody <laughs> called me. Can you imagine answering the phone? You you have a date. Someone's over at your home, and they say, "Donna, I just gotta let you know he's HIV positive." Wow. Yeah. So you put your clothes back on and left. <laughs> well, it wasn't, we hadn't got you know we were like just kissing and stuff. But I and right. who knows? Maybe no, he right. ten yes. minutes later he's gonna tell me. Right. You know? right. Right. But that I got that phone call and that was the reality we mm. were all living in. Mm. I remember going to get my own test mm-hmm. and thinking it could be me. Right. And this was before the antiretrovirals. I mean, this was when HIV was pretty much a guaranteed death sentence. The question was when. Absolutely. It was a question of when. Yes. yes. And especially if you didn't have money, yeah. <laughs> okay. contacts. Insurance. And so if you were a person, especially of color, yeah. you knew it was a death sentence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What have your lives been like outside of the, you know, traveling with HIV or the Blonde Ambition Tour? I mean, what have your lives been like outside of that? Because you've all accomplished things, they just weren't really brought up in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. I've yeah. been working as an actor from before I got the Blonde Ambition Tour. So a lot of what I do is still in that realm. I've done a slew of national commercials and films and TV shows. I have been writing and coaching and my life coaching work, which is the first ever movement based through dance life coaching program called Dance Formation. So I've been traveling around. I now do events with that and building out some other cool entertainment projects. And Kevin? Oh my, Uh, well I don't think I've ever really stopped doing what we were doing back in the day. (laughs) I landed off after tour and literally just auditioned the next day and kept going. Mm. And I've never stopped and it's really not because I have to be a dancer forever, it was just I'm compelled to. It's such a part of me now and such a part of my expression and who I am and such an opportunity. The people that I've worked with over the past 26 years are my family. And why wouldn't I want to continue working with my family, seeing my family, hanging out with the people that I love, earning money and doing fun things in fun situations and exciting cities and exciting countries? I'm having a hard time giving it up, honestly. <laughs> Sometimes your body has other ideas, though. <laughs> well, I did have my hip replaced last year. And, uh, and I was back in class a month later. And, and, and to see him <laughs> dance, you have no freaking idea he ever had surgery. You and Liza Minnelli. Me and I was Minnelli. just going to say hashtag Liza Minnelli. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. And Lewis? My life has been a little twisty, turny, and I don't regret any of that because it's brought me to this situation today. So, but we, me and Jose recorded a little album after, it wasn't really an album, it was actually three songs on a compilation album. Which I heard a little snippet of in the film and I thought, okay, I need to go get that and put that on my workout playlist. It sounded great. It was fun to do. But these days, I work a lot with this charity called Aid for AIDS, the Alliance for housing and healing because this is not only a gay disease this disease does affect women and families Mm -hmm. so this charity directly gives monies to families who are displaced due to hiv and aids and it provides medication and housing for people who are affected with hiv Madonna. I ended up doing six world tours with Madonna. And, and wow! You're like the Michael Jordan of Madonna tours. Um, <laughs> Your voice is more Madonna than Madonna. <laughs> <laughs> um, I started making my own records in 1992, and I've been continuing on. I've made a lot of records in the yoga, world music, devotional genre, and started working with Nikki on this amazing project, which I'm so excited Two about. Two friends. So they I'm just really released excited. a song. 
we released a song. Yes. It's a cover of Rain. Yes. Can we hear a little bit? What key should we do, do it we in? Are you serious? You really want us to sing? I don't want to sing. Feel it on my fingertips. Hear it on my window pane. Your love's coming down like rain. Wash away my sorrow. Take away my pain. Your love's coming down like rain. Uh. What? Is that a blend or is that a blend? I mean, the whole room just lit okay. up. Oh like, everything started bouncing yeah, off the walls. I want everybody's favorite Blonde Ambition memory. So many memories of that tour. This is Donna, by the way. Sometimes I'll be like waking up or going into a dream or something, mm. and things will pop back. Feelings of us all being out to dinner in Paris. Yes. The yeah. one that is really strong that I love, and I think you guys can all relate to, is at the very end of the tour, when Madonna said to us, we're going to do the MTV Awards. Yeah. And the feeling that this is going to continue on, this creativity, oh, yeah. and that we were all so sad to be saying goodbye, but we didn't have to really because we were going to be seeing each other. Right. And then we were all brainstorming about what the theme should be, putting in our yeah. two cents and being creative. And then went on shortly after that to do that performance. Well, first of all, I'm too old to remember what I had for lunch, so I sure don't remember <laughs> much about a tour that was in 1990. No. So many waves. It's waves of feeling. Mm. So the gentleness of laying in beds that we were taking naps in together. <clears throat> As a musician, her allowing Don and I to really have some freedom to say, let's try this, let's try the groove this way. Let's put in that, you know, the keep it together is one of our, my favorite parts of the, sh of the show. Okay, let's try to put a little sly in there. The band was funky. We had this amazing bass player, Daryl Jones, who's now with the Stones. We're like, let's, let's use that. And whereas we didn't really do that in Who's That Girl, we, I, I kind of came in and we just like, here's the parts, here's the outfits, don't say nothing. <laughs> this one, it was like, no, let's try it this way. So that more collaborative feeling. Yes. That's where I got caught up in the like, we're, this is really a family, right? Because we're doing this together, right? Oh, oh, it's going in. Oh. Um, yeah. But I think because we had that collaborative feeling on so many levels, whether it be dancing, whether it be music, whether it be singing, creating arrangements together, that somewhere in our soul, we told ourselves, she ain't saying goodbye, we ain't saying goodbye. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the part that has been really the greatest memory for me that, that continues to hold me up when I'm having moments, and we all had those moments that get to be talked about in Strike a Pose. Clearly, some people are still having the moments. But if I think it's gone, then it's gone. But it never ends. The music never dies. The dance never ends. And that's the perfect note to end on. Thanks, Kevin, Carlton, Lewis, Nikki, and Donna for sharing your stories with us. The documentary is called Strike a Pose. For IMRU Radio, I'm Abby Dees. And I'm Wendell Jones. Don't Strike a Pose documentary is available to stream on the Tubi app. As we said earlier, Hispanic Heritage Month is Wednesday, September 15th through October 15th. So we close this show with a look at a film that chronicles the life of our favorite Mexican artist, Frida Kahlo. Senor Rivera! Who are you? What do you want? I have something important to discuss with you. Okay, come on up here. No, you come down. Mexican artist Frida Kahlo was born on July 6, 1907. Her amazing life included polio, a broken back, a miscarriage, the loss of a leg, two marriages to muralist Diego Rivera, and countless love affairs with both men and women. Hey, listen, if you think I'm going to sleep with you just because you've taken me under your wing, you're wrong. I was painting murals and womanizing in peace when you came along. 
Now This Life has been brought to the screen in a film called Frida, starring Salma Hayek. This was a story that was important for me to tell. I think it's a story that shows Mexico in a light that it's never seen before. You know, at this particular period of time that Frida Lipton was there, Mexico was the nucleus for a lot of sophisticated minds that were kicked out of their country because they were threatening in some way to their countries. And they came and found refugee in Mexico. So it was a bohemian atmosphere of a group of people that were eager to change the world and have new ideas. And um, I don't think people is often seen in this way. And I, I really wanted to show this part of my country and this extraordinary woman that inspired me because of her courage to be unique, always, in everything she did. Frida Kahlo began to paint in 1925 while recovering from a streetcar accident that left her permanently disabled and in pain for most of her life. Her work was personal and primitive. Frida had a style of painting. She did this painting that nobody liked. It was not that she didn't pursue it, nobody liked it. And uh, at the time, it was the time of the muralists. And all these people were painting the reality of the country and the walls of the country, and there were social big concepts. And Frida was making these little, very personal portraits. And uh, she was never influenced by what was going out, out there. She never tried to paint things that people would like and buy. She never tried to paint too much that she would become more popular. She painted when she felt like it. She painted what she felt like it. A couple of times she did paint to try to survive. When she got a divorce from Diego in 1940, this is the period of time where she painted the most, 1940 to 1941. And um, she really wanted to be financially independent from Diego. She was not. She really struggled. She didn't really sell that many. And uh, she did also some portraits of other people, not just anyone, but people that she did care for, uh, trying to achieve this financial. But she was never terribly aggressive because she was never really ready to compromise what she did. And the only person that really understood how genius she was was Diego. And when Diego dies, uh, he leaves a document that says that the house that they lived in should become the Frida Kahlo Museum. And it is thanks to Diego that today Frida is who she is, because otherwise she would have never even had a museum. And um, now this museum is very, very visited by a lot, a lot of people. It's very popular in Mexico. In 1953, when Frida Kahlo had her first solo exhibition in Mexico, a local critic wrote, it is impossible to separate the life and work of this extraordinary person. Her paintings are her biography. In making the film, director Julie Tamar used this to her advantage. Unlike many other artist stories, where you don't know why a person paints a painting, you really can't tell me why someone goes into an abstraction like Pollock or why the sunflowers are painted by, except that they're pretty, by Van Gogh, Frida Kahlo painted her own life. So there was something easier quite honestly, about that, because you could see the moments where the paintings must have come into fruition in her mind. So I went through all of the paintings, and I picked eight or nine that I thought would be great moments to almost end a chapter of her life or begin the next one, like the wedding portrait or the cropped hair. And because you can see in the history, you can see in her story that 
That happened after Diego had an affair with her sister Christina and she cut her hair. I could find the physical landscape to show the mental, interior landscape of what was going on. And I thought, there's nothing more boring than to just have somebody with a paintbrush at a canvas. It doesn't tell you why and how they paint those strokes or those subject matters. So though you see that occasionally, it's not the dominant experience of her as an artist. The experience of Frida as an artist to see her imagination opening up. And you understand it because you understand the environment from which this idea sprung. And later I figured if I could put those pieces together in the sophisticated, naive style of Frida, through animation, through hand-painted animation, through puppet animation. When you finally see the paintings, the audience maybe would say, oh, I understand why she painted her Tejuana dress in the middle of New York City skyline. And it's not just a painting. You go back to the story that made this painting happen. So I, I try really to do it in her style, which I think is charming, beautiful, naive, and very wicked. Although the film focuses on Frida's relationship with her husband, it doesn't shy away from her bisexuality. And like I said before, you know, when you take a character, you have to embrace it for everything that she was. And that is a very important part of who she was. It will be a betrayal not to include that, because she had meaningful relationships with women. I think they were terribly important. Frida Kahlo has become a feminist icon, so it's appropriate that women were the driving force in bringing her story to the screen. This is the first time where I think being a woman had an effect with Salma, with the other women involved in telling the story. I hired a female, we had Sarah Green, we had a, a line producer, our producer. There were many women involved. At first we thought it was gonna be a problem in Mexico, quite the opposite. They all said, oh, it's much better working with women. They loved working with us. Also, there's very many personal things that Salma and I talked about as women. And it was a, it was a very charged feminine environment, but I think it's a good thing for Frida. And according to Salma Hayek, uh, what goes through my mind is that nothing would make Frida happier than through telling her story to have, for the first time, a female director win an Oscar. Frida Kahlo died on July 13, 1954. Although she painted in obscurity during much of her life, in death her reputation as a painter has eclipsed that of her famous husband. You paint her too, Mrs. Rivera. Just killing time. She's much better than me. You'll see. Frida is a Miramax release directed by Julie Tamar, starring Selma Hayek, Alfred Molina, Jeffrey Rush, Antonia Banderas, Ashley Judd, and Edward Norton. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Salías del templo un día llorona cuando al pasar yo te vi. Salías del templo un día llorona cuando al pasar. Frida is available to stream free on Hulu and HBO Max or rent on YouTube and Google Play. Okay, that's it for tonight. I'm Frances O'Brien. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, and Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Please follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. And if you are interested in volunteering with IMRU in any capacity, email public at prideonscreen.com. And a reminder, we're a global podcast as well as a show broadcast by KPFK Los Angeles. And you can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org. Also, catch us at iTunes, Spotify, Breaker, Anchor.fm, Castbox, and Pocket Casts. I'm Frances O'Brien in Los Angeles. Feel free to visit my website, relieveyourmind.com. 
So when we sought to combine Hispanic Heritage Month with Madonna with royalty-free music, because we're also a podcast and the ASCAP license doesn't stretch that far, we came up with just one thing. Enjoy, and thanks for listening. Mira por ahí, donde mire esta pena, donde quiera que esté, intenta todo para poder escapar de lo que conoces. Cuando todo falla y esperaste hacer algo mejor de lo que eres hoy, conozco un lugar a donde puedes ir, se llama baile y aquí es así que vamos pam pam que tu cuerpo se mueva con la música. Que estén a fin, no se queden allí. Hagan una pose, no es difícil. 